Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, True Haunting supporters. Before we start, please note that this episode comes with a warning that it does contain information that may distress people who are of a sensitive disposition. And we do recommend listeners be over 18 years of age. If you feel that this episode raises any personal concerns, please see your local general practitioner. Thank you. True Hauntings is a Human Labs original podcast. Annalise Michel was a German woman who underwent 67 Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. She died of malnutrition, for which her parents and priests were convicted of negligent homicide. Many movies have been made loosely based on the premise of Annalise's possession and exorcism stories. In this episode, we search for the truth behind what really happened to Annalise Michel. Hi, my name's Renata Daniel. And I'm Anne Rekovich, and we welcome you to this episode of True Hauntings. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past 20 years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings. Hi, Anne. Welcome back to the podcasting table. Oh, we're back again at our little white fold-out table with our microphones and music stand. Oh, so professional. Oh, we are so professional. But we have come back from a gorgeous weekend up at Gloucester. Yeah. And that's about, what, two hours mm. now, 45 from? Sort of northwestish. Yeah, Newcastle. We have been running a very special ghost tour, which includes the local museum, which is awesome, 
And also we go then into Gloucester Tops, into the forest. Yes, it's Copeland Tops Park. Now, it's a a national park, isn't it? Yes, it it is. And it's a a rainforest and it actually contains the remnants of an old gold mine. Yeah. So we take our participants in through the forest darkly. And it was a dark moon on (laughs) on Friday, Saturday night. No moon at all. And my God, it was so dark. And then we set up some experiments around the miner's hut and the mine shaft, all of that sort of stuff, and just have an absolutely super fantastic time. And we do thank Gloucester uh, for welcoming us with open arms and allowing the whole process to occur. We have an eco eco pass, eco eco pass, eco pass to be in the forest. And, and that was just a wee bit of paperwork, wasn't it, Renata? Oh, just a just few a wee hundred bit. pages. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's just amazing how the whole township has really been behind it all and how they talk mm. after every time we have come through and apparently we're the talk of the town yet again. Yes, I know it's all. I mean, the car doesn't help, my bright red car with <laughs> a graveyard all around it and ghost number plates. But tell us about this particular B&B that oh. you... Yes. You got for us this time because we took some volunteers with us. Yes, yes. And normally if we just have one volunteer, we will just have the three of us all in one room and share. But this time we had a couple and we didn't think it would be fair to put them in the room with us, particularly since they told us it was their wedding anniversary celebrations and we thought, not appropriate. I don't (laughs) want to be listening to that. Uh, Sorry, Mick and Vic. So, yeah, we got this little Airbnb and it was built in 1899 and I thought, how appropriate for Mm -hmm, us to be staying mm -hmm. in a little spot that that old. And it was very nicely done out. Mm -hmm. Um, We had two single beds in the front room with our urine yellow curtains. They were just (laughs) vitamin B, urine yellow. It was pretty cool. (laughs) But it was a comfy house. They had air con. But on the way there, we got this phone call. Yes. From the lovely lady who owns the place. Now, um, we won't reveal names. English is not her first language. And she spoke to us saying that there are a lot of books in the house. She's put the books up as decorations, and we are not to take the books home. (laughs) Sorry, what? The books, you can look at them, but don't take them home. I'm like, okay. Okay, <laughs> so we're being accused of stealing books and we haven't even got there yet? <laughs> Good God. She's probably had some really bad experiences. Yeah, I would say so, but people don't judge other people on the bad experiences you've had previously. Good heavens. She did leave us a nice review, by the way, saying we were perfect guests. Oh, awesome. We also, though, found a few notes oh, just a the few. house. <laughs> Oh, there was notes in the actual rules of the house as well. Oh, okay. And that was no bucking dogs. No bucking dogs. That's right. (laughs) I think that was supposed to be no barking dogs. Well, either that or she meant an F instead of a B. I don't Mm. know. (laughs) We also had to leave our dirty shoes outside. And then I had a meltdown because I went into the house and I realised there was a bit of mud on the floor next to my bed because it was on my jeans. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my God, she's going to ring me up and have a go at me. And then on the last night we were there, I'd had a bad night the night before. My my whole back ached because I was on this really crappy pillow and so I thought I'd do a hunt around and see whether I could find (laughs) another pillow. Now, the only cupboard in the room was 
behind one of our beds, yes, my and the bed. Yes, the bed was like pushed up against yes, the cupboards. Yes, so the only way to get into the cupboard to have a look if there was an extra pillow in there was to pull the bed out. Well, lo and behold, I've pulled the bed out and it fell apart. <laughs> And you can hear my voice from the kitchen, yeah. from the bedroom going, um. Few choice words there. <laughs> yes, yes. Can somebody come and help? So what had happened, it was a slat bed and the slats weren't nailed down. So as soon as she's moved the bed, all the slats <laughs> fell straight through yes. and the mattress with it. <laughs> Oh my God! I'm sure those beds were uh, meant for young ones, yes. for children, yes. who kind of don't weigh anything, yeah. weigh a, as light as a feather. Yeah. But let's just say that second night that I was there, I hardly slept. You didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to roll over. <laughs> oh my gosh! If I really break this bed, it's going to be murder. <laughs> oh no! So oh, yes, yeah. But it was fun. It was a lovely place to stay, and we we did enjoy ourselves. And maybe you guys one day can come and join us at the Copeland Tops Gold Mine Ghost Tour. Mm-hmm. We thoroughly recommend it. Absolute joy. But let's get on with this episode of Annalise Michel. When I entered the house, Annalise Michel laid fully dressed on the floor of the kitchen and could obviously not be addressed. I am of the opinion that she was in a typical hypnotic state in a kind of deep sleep. I should like to remark that such a state is a symptom of possession. I designate it is a crisis condition. First, I went to the living room with her parents and had them report to me about the condition of their daughter. Then I directed them to bring Annalise into the room and make her sit on the sofa. Her father led her in and held her by the hand because she tried to hit her parents. She did not look emaciated. I sat down beside her and held her hands. In her trance state, a second personage announced itself, calling itself Judas. I had asked, what is your name? And the answer came, Judas. She spoke with an altered, much lower voice. I had held her by the wrists. During the conversation, I noticed that her cramped muscles relaxed. She came to and looked at me with surprise, Apparently, it was not until then that she noticed me consciously. Subsequently, I was able to carry on an entirely reasonable conversation with her. I told her that we would not desert her and that we could and would help her. I was thinking of priestly aid through exorcism. Suddenly, the cramps started again. I asked her family to take her back to the kitchen. I told them that I knew enough about the case, that I had found confirmation of my surmise that we were dealing with a case of possession and that I would have to consider what could be done. When I left the house, Annalise came out of the kitchen and slapped my cheek.
just before I begin, there are a number of books that have been written about this particular case because this case really just goes back to around the 1970s, 1980s. It's, it's relatively new in the whole scheme of things and it is very well documented, especially the court case at the end. Mm-hmm. And so all of that information can be found in books and online. As Anne said, I, I suggest that you have a really good search through this information if this is the type of thing that you are very interested in because the more you dig into some of these cases that are about possession and exorcism, the more you learn about how difficult it is to actually have an exorcism performed and what you should be looking for to even think, even allow it to come into your mindset that this is something that you should do. So this information can be found in one particular book called The Exorcism of Annalise Michel, and it is written by anthropologist Felicitas Goodman, and that's a double-day book published in 1981. So let's start off with the family and her early background. Joseph and Anna Michel lived in a town in Bavaria called Klingenberg, very rural town. Most of the people there were quite devout Catholics, German Catholics, and they really were a working class people. They were all about business, rules, regulations, going to church on Sundays, etc., etc. Now, they had five daughters altogether, but their first child, Martha, died at the age of eight from kidney failure. And then they had four more daughters, Annalise, who was born in 1952, Gertrude, 1954, Barbara, 1956, and Roswitha in 1957. Now, Annalise was pretty bright, and they hoped that she would have a bright future. They hoped that she would eventually go to university and become a school teacher. So they kind of had made their mind up what they wanted Annalise to be, mm-hmm. even though she was just a little girl. Which they did in those days. They did. They did. Parents <laughs> had a lot of influence yeah, on I what to children. A, I wanted to become a jockey and my mother wouldn't let me. <laughs> Seriously. I kind of think that maybe that was a good idea. Yeah, looking at me now, I think I would have squashed the horse. She was very devout in her religion and her religious practices. So the whole thing about the family going to church and being surrounded by people who would have also been devout Christians bore reference on her. Yep, she still liked to have good fun. She was cheerful, highly spirited, had lots of friends and showed a lot of commitment to her schoolwork. So everything in the early years seemed super fine. Absolutely nothing to make anyone aware that anything was wrong. Now, Annalise's first seizure came in 1968. So she was born in 1952. So she was near 16 years old. Yeah. Often a time of change for young girls. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So brain, she, brain chemistry starts to change around that age. Mm-hmm. She had a blackout, but they kind of dismissed it as fatigue rather than anything else. She did find that the following night she woke up around midnight. She couldn't move. She had a feeling of pressure on her abdomen 
and she wet the bed. She couldn't call out. She felt that her tongue had been paralysed and this lasted for about 15 minutes. The following morning, her mother literally said, look, I don't think it's anything. It's, you're probably not well. You're mm. not well. You're overtired. You're not well. Let's keep you home for a while. Now, nothing happened for another year. In 1969, again, another blackout during the day and this conscious paralysis at night. So she was referred by the family doctor, Dr. Voigt, to a neurologist, Dr. Siegfried Lüthi, and she would be seeing Dr. Siegfried for many years to come after that. But Dr. Luthi couldn't really find anything wrong with Annalise at that point in time. He did neurological and physiological tests Tests. on her. He did an EEG, which is an electroencephaliogram. That's a That's a big word with lots of letters. EEG, that's easier. And it showed normal alpha type brain activity, nothing big. And he just advised, look, let's just watch her. Let's just watch her for a little while longer before, you know, we do anything else. Shortly afterwards, while she was going to school, Annalise fell really ill with pneumonia and tuberculosis. So they sent her to a hospital and then they transferred her to a sanatorium for children with lung disease. And there she was for quite a few weeks to recover. Now, on June the 30th, 1970, she had a third seizure, which was similar to the other ones. This time, there was also a stiffness in the arms and also difficulty breathing. Now, that may well have been something, because remember, she had tuberculosis and pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So some of that could have been attributed to the fact that she was ill with those other things. So it was a symptom. She didn't have issues with breathing in the other two, Mm -hmm. but since she'd been diagnosed with tuberculosis and pneumonia, she has trouble with breathing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And she was unable to cry out for help, which would have scared the absolute death out of her. And literally after many minutes, the doctors and nurses finally heard a scream and they came running. Of course, they cleared that up, but she was still in the hospital, still recovering. And a few days later, they found Annalise praying the rosary, which was something that she did all the time. Remember, she came from a really devout Catholic family. And some of the girls that were there in the hospital noted that Annalise looked quite different. They said that her eyes were dilated and nearly black. That could happen from tablets. Could be medication. And medication. But Okay. And that she, her hands were really contorted like a cat's claw and she looked really weird at them. Well, mm-hmm. if she was having muscle spasms and things and she would have looked weird. Mm-hmm. So Annalise was examined by another neurologist and he, again, he recorded, look, some irregular alpha patterns with some theta and delta waves, uh, but nothing to really write home about, if if that's the way you want to say it. He did recommend some anticonvulsive drugs. Oh, do you have the name of it? Uh, No, not this particular one. I think I do anyway, so. (laughs) So a week later, 
So she starts on these drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a week later, of course, Annalise is praying again because obviously the family has been taught you pray to God if there are issues and God will help you. And suddenly she sees a really awful grimacing face in front of her eyes. Point being that she didn't see any of this prior to being given drugs. Medication. Medication. She only started to see these after medication was given to her. She didn't mention the horrible face that she saw to the doctor at all. And she really didn't think at that time that there was anything untoward going yeah. on. Like yeah. her head didn't go to, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm possessed. possessed. Yes. She just kind of really didn't know what all that was about. Mm-hmm. And of course, it would have been a really horrible thing for her. Uh, she didn't have anything else at that point in time, and it was really, really important for her to finish school. And so the family was desperate to get her out of any hospitals or anything so that she could go back to school, finish her education, and then go on to be the teacher that she wanted to be. So she kept going to the neurologist. Um, he prescribed the anticonvulsants, and she took those for a brief period of time. I think that was the Dilantin. We'll see, because I do have a couple of the yeah, medications the first one down. they started on her was the Dilantin and then it went into the Pericreazine and then Tegretol. Mm-hmm. So for the next two years, so we're going into 1971 and 72, Annalise tended to miss a lot of school. She was still ill. She felt very lethargic and apathetic and these drugs tend to dull the mind. Yep. So this was probably something that she was really feeling at that point in time but couldn't connect it to the drugs. I actually have. I've looked up the symptoms of what some of these drugs did to you. Yeah. So she would continue to see Dr Luthi uh, and he again examined her, did another EEG and he prescribed the next anticonvulsant which was Zentropil. Or Dilantin. Mm-hmm. So in America, it's known as Dilantin. Yes. And he recommended regular follow ups. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we've just got a young girl who's had a couple of seizures, mm-hmm. a couple of, you know, things going on, feels really lethargic, feelings of disconnection from the real world. That's it. Nothing more than that. So in the spring of 1973, things start to change. So she begins to feel more stiffness around her body, but she starts to smell a stench, something that smells like feces or something burning. Didn't we have someone the other night saying they were getting the smells of... Let's not go there. (laughs) Yes, yes. We did on on Monday night, 7.30pm Sydney time, we have Q&A with Anne and Renata Mm -hmm. on... On Facebook, yeah, plug. So she kept on seeing the the grimacing faces. She would get prolonged muscle spasms, which is a known side effect of Dilantin, Mm -hmm. but the drug was not known to cause any visual or olfactory hallucination. So they didn't know where that was coming Mm -hmm. from. And the olfactory uh, refers to the smells. The smell, yeah. So, again, 1973, she starts hearing a knocking sound in her room. The specialist really can't find any reasonings for this knocking noises or the smells, but her mother starts to say she thinks something supernatural might be going on. 
Right. Before this, Annalise doesn't mention anything about anything ghostly, anything supernatural, anything demonic at this point in time. But when this starts to happen, interestingly enough, not only Annalise but her mother and the daughters start to also hear the tapping noises. All right, okay. And they start to smell the smells that Annalise says that she's smelling. Now, they tell the father, Joseph, and he says, look, it's just all hysteria. Come on, ladies. And that that can happen. Yeah. That you start to believe if enough people are saying, I can smell it, I can smell it, then you will start to smell it too. Yep, absolutely. So Joseph steps in and says, come on, get over it. Get back to 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 normal life. Get back to normal life. And the only extra thing that really disturbs Annalise's mother is that she catches Annalise staring at a statue of the Virgin Mary and it looks like she's got a snarl on her face and is sort of has this malicious expression. But once again, if she's having muscle spasms and contortions, that could actually be a physical thing that is happening to her. Yep. Now, like I said, Annalise didn't think that she was crazy or that she had something wrong with her head and she didn't think at all that she was being assaulted by demons or anything like that. It was her mother who first suggested this suspicion. Now, Annalise starts praying really, really hard because, of course, the parents say, pray to God, he will fix you. Yeah. Pre will obviously fix you. So he, she starts praying and she gets to a point where because of, of her devotion to prayer and her need for God to listen to her, she gets really upset when things don't change. Mm-hmm. And she has this sense that she's kind of been abandoned and that the more she prays, the less God is listening. Oh, wow. That would be so distressing for a young girl like that. Mm. Now, this is called spiritual barrenness, and apparently it's a common problem encountered by contemplatives. And contemplatives are those that pray a lot, okay. like nuns or monks. So, And they when- have to learn, they have to learn that the love of God even in the absence of an emotional consolation, has to be worked through. So this is like another test of faith. Yep. So even though you're not getting a message from God, you've got to know that he still loves you and you just got to pray harder. So it's like, yeah, look, these emotions that you're feeling are your fear and your lack of faith. So you've got to try harder. Yeah. Yeah. You're obviously not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. Now, despite all of her illnesses and the way she really feels and the anticonvulsant drugs, Annalise actually passes some of her difficult examinations and she graduates. And so in the summer, a friend, Thea Hine, decides to, after talking with the mother, to take Annalise on a road trip. Road trip! to a shrine at San Damiano. Right. Okay, yep. 
in the hopes of lifting her spirits. Now, this Thea Hine appears time and time again in the early years of Annalise's life and through up to the point of the first exorcism. And I tried to find out some more information about Thea Hine, but I ran out of time because I wanted to find out what influence Thea had on Mm, all of this. Yeah. Once the ladies arrived... They, of course, went into prayer and they went into the shrine and Annalise started to show aversion to anything that was symbolic of saintliness or godliness. So religious sort of things. So she said that the ground would burn her feet like fire, the praying Pilgrims seemed to be gnashing their teeth. She avoided looking at the picture of Christ and she said all the medals and pictures of all the saints shined so brightly that they blinded her eyes. Wow, that sounds like a very typical start of like an oppression, doesn't it? Yep. Mm -hmm. So she wouldn't drink the water from the well, which I think... Thea Hine rarely wanted her to because mm-hmm. this was going to be a miraculous conversion that back to get that nastiness yep. out of her. Yep. And when that all didn't happen, and Annalise actually sort of you know, attacked Thea for all of this and you know, broke her own cross on her neck and all of this sort of stuff, she decided, or Thea decided, look, they better just go. They better go. So they got on the bus. And they started to go back. Annalise was shrunken into a corner. She didn't want to look at anyone. She didn't want to speak to anyone. But the foul smell permeated the whole bus. And everyone said that there was a stench there. And, of course, you can imagine what this would have led to. And once again, I'd like to throw in is that she's had some sort of turn or something there. She quite possibly have soiled herself. She could have. Mm-hmm. The poor girl. She did describe and say that my will is not my own. Someone else is manipulating me. Mm-hmm. So this is quite a few years later. I had a look through the notes and we're, we're kind of going from 1968 to 1973. So five years of all of this coming around. So she continued to have a strange aversion to sacred objects. This is when she also started to speak in a deeper voice. Mm -hmm. Now, if she had been angry, shouting, yelling, that could have made her vocal cords quite hoarse Mm -hmm. and therefore this voice started to appear. Yeah, as a a singing teacher, I used to teach singing, what happens is they swell and they become jagged and they can't come together properly to be able to produce your normal vocal tones. Mm -hmm. So you can get a distortion. Mm -hmm. Annalise goes back to Dr Luthi and finally tells him about the hideous faces that she's been seeing. She even tells Dr. Luthi at the moment, at that particular point, that she feels that the devil is inside of her. She's probably been listening to this the whole time. And Dr. Luthi says, I think you should go see a priest about that. Oh, did he say it like that? Oh, I think you should go see a priest about that. Well, what they say in the court notes is that he claims he never said that at all. At that point, he never said anything like that and that it would have been a throwaway statement if he had. Yeah, and everyone's trying to cover their ass. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Luthi didn't see much to do with any of the visions or anything like that, but to shut everyone up, he gives her some drops. Aolept, Aolept, Perichiazine. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to say Perichiazine, which is a medium intensity drug for neurosis in children. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here she is with more medication down her throat. They kind of say that if he had listened to her at that stage, maybe he could have stopped or nipped in the bud what was going to happen next. Yep. But this was a real throwaway thing. You are carrying on like a naughty little girl. Medicate. Let's give her some medication because we don't know what else to do. We have a period then, 1973, so we're up to 1973, and she continues the treatment with the two drugs, Annalise's visions, they don't go away. The drugs don't seem to be doing anything other than making her more tired and depressed. So this is this cycle now. She's depressed, she's tired, can't get out of bed, doesn't want to eat. Her schooling has gone down the tubes. All of this sort of stuff is happening. Normally they see her as a, you know, what's happened to our child? They finally call in a priest, finally call in a priest. And this is Father Habiga the pastor of the Mother of God Parish in Aschaffenberg. Oh, well done. Mm-hmm. I did do German for two years. Oh, well, could and, have fooled me. <laughs> and he says that he found a normal, shy little girl with no signs of possession at all, and he recommended that she go see a physician. Oh, no. And she goes, no, I've been seeing physicians for the last five years. The They've doctors done nothing. absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing other than dull her brain and she refuses to see another specialist. So now she's 21 years old. The doctors can't do anything for her. She does complete her German school curriculum all through this, which attests to her ability to still concentrate and study. Yes. Can can no one see that? Yeah. If she was completely and totally possessed... There would be no way she could do any sort of learning. She gets a driver's license. Wow. How is that possible? Yeah. So that she can go to university, right? Thea Hines back again, and she's able to contact an elderly Jesuit priest, Father Adolf Rodwick, in Frankfurt, and she has a talk to him. He's an expert on possession because he's written a book. So this Thea is pretty determined she's possessed. Yep. And this is this is the key here. I think Thea has a lot to do with this because her name comes up again and again. Father Adolf goes and talks to another father, Father Herman, of the Mother of God Parish in Aschaffenberg. So they're all talking about her. Yep. And he meets with Annalise ten times and finds her to be a really nice, deeply religious girl and they actually play, pray the rosary together and nothing happens. Yep. Everything's fine. So he recommends her go back to Dr. Luthi again. So they're all saying, go back to your doctor. Go back to your doctor. Go back to your doctor. Then they find Father Alt. Now, Father Alt has already heard of Annalise's case. He's from the St. Agatha Parish in Aschaffensburg. Let me say that again. (laughs) I think I said that wrong that time, but anyway. And he is very much into the whole paranormal thing. 
So he has a great interest in the paranormal. He's conducted studies in ESP, which apparently is the thing that there's no huge issue with priests getting into the paranormal and learning about all of this stuff and researching. So extrasensory perception. Yep. So in the 1970s, apparently secular researchers love to look at ESP seriously, and he's one of those. There is a little bit of a problem with Father Alt. Oh, is there? Mm -hmm. He has been looked at very, very intensely regarding his own neurological and physiological abilities. So some in the cloisters believe that he's a little bit loopy. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's because he believes in all of this stuff, right? Right. So even though he is well-studied, well-versed, a very educated man. He sounds like he needs his biases confirmed. Because he believes in possession Mm -hmm. and ESP, extrasensory perception, all of that sort of stuff, they kind of think that there is a possibility that he is a type of schizophrenic. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So... He exhibits no pathological symptoms, but the doctors still slap him with that label of schizophrenia. And he seems to be a bit of a empath because there are stories then that say that he's to meet with Annalise, but he has these visions of her before he meets her. So he knows what the whole family looks like, apparently. Mm-hmm. He says, I am there. I feel her feelings. I oh, know what's in her head. He's astral travelling into the mm-hmm. and and remote viewing. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know her. I know her family. I know what they look like. Oh, I, I know, know what they I have. need to take on her case. I know that mm-hmm. she can prove that I'm right. And then there oh. is another episode where he prepares a mass for her. And prior to the mass, he has this experience where there is an energy that comes in and he's at the altar at the church and energy comes in, pushes him towards the altar, presses him there. He smells a disgusting smell. You know, there is a, a kind of a, a nauseated feeling. He tr- He's going to go faint. He experiences a strange excitation, as he says, that he's never been subjected to before. And so he really feels that he is in her mind and exploring the same things and feeling the same things that she is. Either that or he's got the same disease as her. Yeah, that makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So, of course, Father Alt relates his experiences to another priest and he's unable to sleep after that particular incident And, yeah, he prays to Father Padre Pio, who is a saint. And now we've got two people in the same room that are experiencing the same things and who are using the same vocabulary, as it were. But I guess from Annalise's point of view, she finally meets someone who understands her completely. Mm. Someone that's empathetic towards her because they've experienced it themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe she finds in Father Alt a really close confidant, someone Mm -hmm. that she can really talk to. Things start to go astray and my my bit will be finished shortly because it just sort of goes from, Oh, look, this this may be a slightly longer episode just because it's massive. The whole thing is massive. 
Father Alt then goes and talks to a friend of his father, Rolf, and they finally decide to meet Annalise herself. And I'm just going to read to you what Father Alt recalls of his first impressions. This is what he says. She looked in no way ill or sickly, but she was pale and very serious. As far as I can recall, I am looking for people who would believe me, she said. She never used the word possessed, and from the conversation there was no way in which one could conclude that she was. I don't think she knew what exactly the word meant, and I must confess that neither was I clear on the theological concept of possession. Mm. So here we have Father Alt and Father Rolf getting together with Annalise, and still they kind of think... So have they had to explain to her what possession is and what it all involves? Mm. Well, isn't that then laying down what her next lot of behaviour becomes? Mm. So Father Alt finds Annalise an intelligent girl with a gift for analysis and very high academic performance. He didn't assume that she was possessed, but he believed that if they were going to go down that road, it would take a really, really long time to prove it. They kind of really pushed away from that, but people from the outside would have said after they went through this case and went through the court case that Father Alt and Father Rolf actually enabled Annalise's delusions by agreeing with her. Yep. So fed into it. in this in this time when she's having her deep, deep secrets of what she's feeling, seeing, and hearing acknowledged, people are saying, "Well, it should have just slapped that out of her and not said, "Look, we understand." Nobody listened. They Nobody just listened. told her. No. So she goes on from 1973 to 74 into a depression and even stronger medication. And then she sees a Dr. Lena who's a Freudian psychiatrist. Oh, no. And Freudian and Freud was Let's just explore brilliant. your dark side. <laughs> but, of course, everything is due to her mother. Yes. And again. Poor mum. It's exactly the same. Dr. Lena br- blames the fact that she felt, and Elise felt, that she had no father to depend upon and um, she developed a deep-seated hatred of her mother who forbade her from having boyfriends. And at this time, oh, by the way, Annalise has a boyfriend. Yeah, and her father was around and from some of the stories I've read was there by her side for some of it. Mm. So sounds like another person who's trying to make it fit their bias. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lena recommends that Annalise participates in group therapy, but that doesn't work really well. And again, she's told that she's kind of not crazy. She doesn't want to be there with the rest of the group because they're talking about crazy things and she's not crazy. (laughs) So she doesn't want to be in group therapy. She depends a lot on the boyfriend that she has. And it appears from what I read that they have a really good relationship and he sticks by her. He does all the way through. 
she tells Father Alt she can't pray anymore. She's had enough. She's tried really, really hard and, you know, it, nothing seems to work. Prayer requires focus and concentration and she just can't do that anymore. And part of that, I dare say, is due to all the drugs that she's been taking. Do you know what you can do for that? Give her another drug yeah. to counteract the other drug. Yep, yep. Mm. So, so nobody's getting to the no, to root cause. No, no, no. She sees another doctor, more tests. They find a bit of irregular brainwave patterns, nothing to account for why these strong anti-epileptic drugs are being taken because they're not really doing anything. And at no point did any of the drugs take away that horrible face that she keeps on seeing. So she keeps on seeing these horrible things. So after consulting with some more priests, Father Alt believes that it's time to do something more. And they believe that she's not possessed, but that she is suffering from circumcisio. Sounds like you're going to take off a foreskin, yes. but yeah, keep going. Circumcisio, which is where a person is surrounded by evil forces. Right. Okay. So they decide that they will treat her for that. And so Father Alt starts to give her blessings, praise with her, and he finds that she has some success with that. But he has to keep coming back and doing it. Mm. So there's a slight improvement between 1974 and 1975, but then there is a relapse and she starts writing a lot of things down. So she starts to write these really horribly unstructured and grammatically wrong and desperate desperate words on paper which are found and this distresses the whole family. And so from that point on, they feel that we need to go to the next level because she's at the crossroads. She's at the crossroads between life and death. Hi, I'm DeLon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey. And together we host the podcast, Let Me Fix It. Each week we explore something from the past and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past. Let's talk about the new show of the moment. DeLon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing (laughs) show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days. But thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her messy 20s. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ah, right. Well, I've got 11 pages of notes and I'm going to try and go through it as quickly and concisely as I possibly can because there is so much to cover. So what I'm going to be looking at is the actual stage of when the exorcisms begin. So this is around July 30, 1975. Peter, the boyfriend, comes to visit her and they go for a walk and poor Annalise is constantly exhausted and sluggish and she's got that stiff-limbed gait. Yep. So when, when she She's getting a bit tired. Peter says, let's, let's go back home. And suddenly she's able to move and is like moving happily, gingerly, like there's nothing going on with her and she's very happy and, and that she's back to her full self again. The next day she returns to school where she registers for the semester, which is great. And while grocery shopping, however, her face and legs tense up, but she doesn't behave aggressively. She just gets this stiffening again, mm-hmm. which actually is a symptom of Parkinson's where they can suddenly get stiff and not be able to move and they've got to wait till it breaks. That just popped into my mind. I forgot about that. So apparently when she went back to her room, she stood stiff in front of the crucifix, glaring at it with hatred. Mm-hmm. So they're taking that as a sign of hatred towards religious objects. Now, this is what Peter said. Her face was totally distorted. She growled like an animal and gritted her teeth so loudly that I was afraid that all her teeth would fall out. I started praying for her in thought without giving any indication of all what I was doing. Immediately, she ordered me with clenched teeth to stop. Ooh. Okay. So that's that's having knowledge that supposedly she shouldn't have. Now, Peter wasn't a church-going guy mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. but because of what was going on with Annalise, he actually did start to go to Mass for her sake. Mm-hmm. And now he feels like he's, he's faced with supernatural. She actually said to Peter later on that, I wanted to take the cross in my hand, but against my will I was pushed back so I couldn't reach it. So once again, it's that stiffness of the body, Mm -hmm. unable to move. Mm -hmm. Is this a form of epilepsy? This is what they were looking at. So Peter then went home and she got worse. At that stage, the parents started petitioning for the bishop for an exorcism, and so did Father Alt, even chasing down the bishop on his vacation to, to plead. So they finally got permission to do a short exorcism. On the 3rd of August, he did that. She whimpered and moaned throughout, but was not violent. She did call out, stop, it's burning. When asked where, she said her arms and her back, and she then she stated, I'm free, suggesting that she was free of some demon but continued to whimper and moan. So this exorcism lasted for two hours. Oh, gosh. Now, Father Alt believed the exorcism had helped, mm-hmm. which might be an ego thing for him, but she got worse throughout August. 
she suffered from insomnia, could only sleep for an hour or two. She would run through the house, bucking up and down on the stairs like a goat. Mm -hmm. The kneeling and standing began where she would drop to her knees Mm -hmm. and stand up and she would do it in quick succession to the point that in the end she actually ruined her knees. She repeatedly prayed saying, my Jesus, forgiveness and mercy, forgiveness and mercy. She constantly screamed, sometimes trembled and fell completely rigid. She could be catatonic for days and her sister would have to feed her and wash her. Now, they said that after the exorcism, she actually started to show some insane behaviour. But it was very classical demonic behaviour, which is why I was asking you the question, as when they've explained, maybe explained to her what a demonic possession was, is she starting to copy some of the things that they've said Mm. we'll never know Mm -hmm. so she showed superhuman strength kneeling and rising rapidly she felt hot and wouldn't tear her clothes off because she felt like she was burning up she would eat insects urinate on the floor and then lick it up she would try to hit her family she would destroy sacred objects could this be schizophrenia or psychosis of some form or other but not all of those things would fit underneath that very neat little heading. And this is what's confused a lot of people. She also had hallucinations where she'd see clouds of flies, shadowy small creatures that apparently her family could eventually see. She'd have visions of the dead and she actually ended up with stigmata at some stage as well. Yes. The local parish priest did say that she needs to get to a psychiatrist and get treated. Now, the Father Roderick, which I think is is Roderick sort of thing, but it's spelt with a W-Y-K, finally comes to see her himself and said that he found Annalise lying on the floor in an apparent hypnotic trance, oblivious to those around her. She was led to the sofa by her parents and the priest asked, what is your name? She responded, Judas, uttered in a deeper, altered voice. After a while, her muscles uncramped and she was able to speak as herself with calmness and lucidity. There is this interesting thing that they talk about the Judas demon or possession by Judas, and it's often claimed by possession victims. It's not really a demon, but it's rather the name of the role or the function of that demon, a betraying demon. So a Judas demon attempts to force its victim to imitate the apostle in the betrayal of his Lord, often by preventing victims from swallowing during Holy Communion in order to steal the host. Annalise did in fact feel resistance to swallowing the host as she allowed it to dissolve in her mouth. She also displayed a compulsion to kiss people while wearing a hostile expression on her face, reminiscent of the Judas kiss. Mm -hmm. And this confirmed his belief that she was possessed by this Judas demon. She also said that she wasn't allowed to eat. Mm -hmm. The demons would not allow her to eat. Now, that to me is almost like another personality coming forwards. Yes, and people will often have a split personality if they're going through a major trauma Mm. because that's the only way they can save themselves. And they're saying that they can't pinpoint to any trauma that she may have had, but maybe the trauma was never revealed and there is a bit of a pattern that starts to emerge which... I hope we'll show with my notes as we go on. So September 16, 1975, and remember, this is satanic panic time. Yes. Two priests finally convinced the bishop to allow them to do a full exorcism. But at that stage, she was actually starting to feel a bit better. But why go into the whole exorcism Exorcism. if she was starting to feel better? 
So September 24th, they found her to be quite normal on the first day. He performed the standard rite. During the ritual, Annalise's behaviour started to change. She she began to shake violently and screamed and squirmed and had to be held down by three men. That's showing excessive strength. But this young girl, if she's had a trauma, Mm -hmm. is now being held down by Mm -hmm. three men. Yep. Yep, that's just horrible. Yeah, she was biting and kicking. Sounds like she was fighting for her very life. When sprinkled with holy water, she screamed and hurled the occasional obscenities demanding the priest stop. This went on for five and a half hours. Oh, my goodness. No wonder she was speaking with a croaky voice. Oh, at the end she said that they should have continued as she felt the exorcism was troubling the demons. She was quite lucid. She said she remembered everything but the words and the deeds weren't hers. It was like she had a completely separate identity. For the priest, this was proof of possession. For me, it sounds like the dissociative identity disorder, like Sybil Mm -hmm. or Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. by any stretch of any imagination, but I did do the mental health first aid course and we did cover some of this Mm -hmm. and it it really sounds like it. She ended up saying she was actually possessed by quite a few people, so I will get to that. Mm -hmm. I think it was Um, six or something, mm, wasn't it? She had knowledge of things that she shouldn't as well. Mm -hmm. But then again, has she overheard things? They emit Hideous screams, growls and moans and speak in a deep, hoarse voice, uttering curses and mocking the exorcist. They seem to understand Latin, though on a traditional Catholic girl might be expected to know some of those because you, mm-hmm. when you went to church it was all in Latin. Yes. The priests also tested this knowledge of unknown by speaking to her in Chinese. Now, the demon didn't respond at that stage and told them in German that they should speak to her in German. When speaking, the the demon spoke to them in Dutch. I don't know whether she had knowledge of Dutch or how close Dutch is to German. That's not something I know about. But as I said, being Catholic, she would have had a good understanding of Latin. She hated any invocation of the St. Michael Archangel and seemed to fear the Blessed Virgin, dreaded any mention of guardian angels and screamed in horror during the litany of the five sacred wounds, which also possibly relates to the stigmata that started to appear. So she had knowledge of stigmata. Maybe it was self-inflicted. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they were hoping by learning the name of the identity of the demon, they would hope to get some leverage or power over it, and then they would know how to get rid of it. So she came up with several names, Judas, and then Cain, mm-hmm. Hitler, mm. Pastor Fleischmann. Now, the Pastor Fleischmann is a very interesting character. He was a medieval priest who was a womanizer, a drunkard and brute who had beaten a man to death and a woman nearly to death. Now, they asked why she was frightened by the name Fleischmann, upon which she then screamed again, her face alternated between smiles and hideous contortions. She immediately apologized, please don't take it too hard, I can't help it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting statement in itself from her. That evening, while Father Renz performed the rite of exorcism, the demonic person identified itself as Fleshman and gave many biographical details that Father Alt had never mentioned in Annalise's presence. But could she have knowledge from somewhere else? Could they have overheard them talking about it? Well, she was a studious girl, maybe... 
Or she could have had psi ability. She could, yep. I mean, that's a stretch, but just saying. We were talking about the dissociative disorder. They couldn't find any severe trauma or stress or lack of family nurturing. She didn't have abusive parents. They couldn't work out why she would have had this reason for her personality to split. Mm -hmm. I just reckon they never actually found out or she's blocked it out herself, which some people can do, Mm -hmm. block out a whole trauma and not know that they've done it. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting point about the stigmata too and people who have stigmata. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that all people who have We're not meaning to offend anybody here. We're just going to share some knowledge. Yes. It's quite interesting that many people who have stigmata over the years have had them appear in the traditional way that is seen in in pictures and on the cross. Yes. Where the wounds appear in the middle of the the hand when in actual fact what they say is that if anyone was to be hung on the cross, the only way to hang them or to nail them would be through the wrists. Because it would just tear straight through the hands with the weight of them. But it doesn't seem that they get the stigmata there. No. They get them in the middle of the hand, which is quite... Interesting. With the lovely white European Jesus. Mm. Yeah, I'm crossing the line. We're going to get hate mail. <laughs> we will get hate mail. Um, anyway, let's let's get on to it. So we're going to get on to October 4th to 6th, two weeks after Father Renza began the exorcisms, the don- demonic personalities weakened and started to speak less frequently. October 7, Dr. Keller has given some more Tegretol prescriptions to Annalise, and that same evening the demons returned in full force even uttering a hoarse scream and a high-pitched laugh simultaneously. That would have been terrifying. So she gets medication and gets worse. Yep. Right. You would have think at some stage there somebody's gone, oh, wow, maybe there's something going on there. Mm. October 13, Annalise begins receiving messages from the Virgin Mary. Even her family was sceptical at this stage and she wrote them down in a diary. Now, Father Renz at this stage thought he would introduce somebody called Barbara Vigand, um, who was a seer and had also written heavenly messages. She was revered by the family. The family knew about her. She had passed. He offered to show Annalise these. Apparently the Virgin Mary then said she had to carry on Vignad's writings. So she's switched now from demonic to Virgin Mary. The sufferings of that woman inspired Annalise to perceive meaning in her own torments. So this lady had suffered dreadfully, apparently, and, and receiving these messages. So Annalise has found something mm-hmm. that she can relate to. Yep. Annalise said, I don't hear voices exactly. I'm only given to understand. Though she depicts the visitations with visual imagery, she writes, I see nothing. Thus, these inspirations cannot be properly attributed to auditory or visual hallucinations, which are normally signs of schizophrenia. They're purely spiritual or intellectual. Just, it just... That kind of just is weird. It is. October 16th, the Virgin Mary says she will free Annalise in October. And she also made a prediction about a World War III, which was going to be worse than uh, World War One or Two, and would happen in Europe. She also had a visitation from Father Roth's nephew, who had died at the beginning of October. So now she's starting to see deceased people mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. She recorded messages from Christ himself, but of course they thought that might be Satan mm-hmm. trying to trick them. Mm-hmm. You will become a great saint. 
and is forced to weep tears in proof that she heard correctly. In another, the saviour tells her, you are going to get married, Annalise. In this one way, you are not going to be like Barbara, but you are going to be like her in every other way in suffering and sacrifice. So this is one of the messages that was coming through from Mm -hmm. Jesus. The last week of October, she continues to receive messages from the Saviour and everyone's expecting her to be free of demons on October 31, Halloween, of course. When it ticked over to the 1st of November and it didn't all magically disappear. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. Dr. Keller wrote another Tegracol prescription at this stage. Oh, and then Father Renz conducted another exceptionally long exorcism persevering for four and a half hours and this has been recorded on audio tape. So early in the session, Annalise shrieks in her own voice, saying, We are not leaving. Later, she uses a low, growling, demonic voice to taunt the priests and resist him. The personages now include Cain, Judas, Lucifer, Nero, Fleischmann, trying to stall for time, saying they have the lady's permission to stay, which would be Virgin Mary. So that doesn't make sense at all. And they will not leave until 10 o'clock. Right. One conveys a message from the Virgin. She is happy about all of you because you kept on praying. You are to continue as much as you can. So it's flip-flopping from it's from all over the place. Yeah, from Virgin Mary being a good figure to then it actually being a demon in disguise mm-hmm. and pretending to be Virgin Mary. And at ten o'clock, each of the personages depart as promised, saying, "Hail Mary, full of grace, as commanded by the priest on priest on exiting." All the demons were gone by ten forty-five p.m. and they sang to Deum in German to celebrate. But Oh, next day. Short-lived, as they start to sing a Marian hymn, the demonic growl and screams interrupted, saying, I have not gone out yet. This demon didn't give their name and didn't want to reveal their presence. So Father Renz continued on for another three hours trying to cast him out. Oh, no. So we're up to, what, seven, eight hours? Oh, so Yeah. <sighs> uh, so the... She did return to school a week later. She crammed for an exam and passed with good grades. Oh, my goodness. Now, the school and all her friends were not even aware any of this was going on. Oh. Is that true? Yeah. So November 9, we're up to another exorcism session, and the demon is Judas this time, mm-hmm. and she's getting more Tegretol prescriptions. She rarely manifested demonic behaviour outside of exorcism sessions at her family home and continues her studies, as I said, with most of the companions, totally unaware of what was happening. One occasion in January, Annalise's face contorted and she struck Peter. She returned to normal after he threw holy water on her at her request. 
So she was in the middle of all of this and she's throw holy water on me. Hmm. So the, the exorcism session started to last for about two hours. Oh. So she didn't exhibit anything in between the exorcisms. She she seemed to have long periods of total normality. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit now to April. So this is where Thea Hine comes back into it. Oh, Thea's back. So she's having a few issues that are going on. She said to Thea to promise to inform her if anyone is set thought of sending her to a physician. She didn't want to go to any doctor. So she's refusing doctor treatment all the way through now because she's felt the doctors have let her down. She also warned, now as she's saying to this to Thea, she said there will be a strong burning stench shortly. And immediately they both smelled an unbearable stench in the car that endured for 10 minutes after opening up the windows. April 13th, the Tuesday before Easter, Annalise felt a compulsion to start the kneeling in the school chapel until the next morning. Following day, she was able to discuss her thesis with her advisor with a lucidity exhibiting sound critical thinking when discussing relevant literature. So she's wow. had another problem the night before but is back to normal the next day. Mm-hmm. April 15th, Holy Thursday, Annalise felt a terror and a great weight pushing down on her while kneeling in church to pray. She believed she was experiencing the death agony of the Saviour and felt the pains of the stigmata. Mm-hmm. At the end of Good Friday service, Annalise remained standing rigid for hours, unable to move. She would become rigid whenever somebody tried to get her out of bed and dress her to go home. So they were trying to get her home Mm -hmm. and she just would go into this stiffness. Mm -hmm. Was she starting to panic Mm -hmm. about going home? Well, there'd be another exorcism waiting for her, wouldn't there? Yep. Last week of April, she started refusing to eat again. She refused a doctor. None of the friends knew still about all of this uh, possession and exorcism stuff, apart from someone called Anna Lippert, who called Father Renz and Alt. April 30th, she started screaming May 1st. She was back to normal. She wanted to work on her thesis and asked if she could go to the parish house in case she needed an exorcism. So she's now moving into the parish house with the priests mm-hmm. just in case she needs exorcisms while she's studying. Mm-hmm. Now the, the next thing she started to tell her boyfriend was that her suffering would be over by July. Mm-hmm. So she's making a prediction. There was one afternoon where Annalise asked Peter to get, take her down to see the lovely renovated church. Once inside, her face stiffened and she became impassive. When Peter tried to move her, she felt too heavy. So he offered a short prayer, which was enough to snap her out of it. But when she got back, she went back to bed. Mm-hmm. She was back into that state where she got sicker. She refused to eat and sleep. She couldn't even lay in bed anymore. Her sister was called in to take care of her. A local elderly woman was summoned also to help her. Her sister injured her foot and had to go back. So she was forced to go back home. Once home, her condition worsened again. She raged, screamed, struggled violently. Again, two men holding her down struck and bit herself. The Wrens was back, repeatedly reciting exorcism rites. Some of her uh, compulsive behaviours returned with the kneeling and the rising. May 20th, she was lucid for five hours, dictating an outline for her thesis. Oh, my goodness. But then the rest of the time, she could barely converse. So 
Dr. Roth. Now, some of these notes come from a website called arcaneknowledge.org and they're referring to the trial and they're talking about Dr. Roth visited on May 30th, but apparently it was only out of scientific curiosity, not as a doctor. Mm-hmm. He'd heard about all these exorcism things and he wanted to come and have a look, not offer doctorly advice mm-hmm. because if he had seen the state she was in, he would have been in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So on June 2, Father Renz reported to the bishop that Annalise, her left cheek was badly swollen. There were bruises around her eyes from self-inflicted blows. Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder if if she was harmed because she's not responding to exorcisms and she started to get smacked around. Because to be able to punch yourself in the eye, I've seen these photos mm-hmm. and we will put some of these photos up, but they're very disturbing of this very malnourished girls with black eyes mm-hmm. and she she looks like she's about to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, the black eyes could be from the, 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 the lack of food and the trauma and the stress mm-hmm. and, and everything that is happening as well, but... Anything can happen if you've got men holding you, pinning you down and you're in a chaotic mental, physical and emotional state, you will hurt yourself and you don't even know you've you've done yeah. it. It's just the whole thing is just absolutely awful. Yeah, so Dr Roth claimed when testify- testifying he didn't see any of those injuries because he was avoiding criminal negligent charges. According to family members, he did because he commented on the stigmata. Mm-hmm. So during the exorcism, the demons were refusing to speak. Now instead they were just babbling. They would just mm-hmm. talk rubbish. Mm-hmm. Father Renz later conjectured that this was a penance possession where the possessed endures suffering in reparation for someone else's sins, yet he admitted he could not understand the meaning of the penance. Now I read somewhere else that she was dropping to her knees and asking forgiveness all the times for the sins of the priests. Mm-hmm. Yes, I and read that as well. That's yes. going back to that priest from the medieval times. But Fleischmann. Yeah, Fleischmann. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By June 18th, her injuries had healed except for an open sore on her knees and nosebleeds from rubbing. Uh, she still compulsively knelt and rose dozens of times a day until exhausted. She screamed and raged in bed, even as her mother attempted impromptu exorcism prayers. So everyone's throwing these exorcisms at her. Yep. She still had many lucid periods where she could converse normally. She kept saying that she expects it to be over by July and continually said, don't call a doctor. Do not call a doctor. And the reason behind that is that she feared being sent to a state mental institution where she felt she did not belong. Now, that's interesting because you said that she was put into an institution for her... Lungs. Lungs. Mm -hmm. Has something happened there? Is that where the traumatic event has taken place, that she has this fear of doctors and going to some sort of institution where she would be cared for? Mm-hmm. Because mm. through all of this, she's just refusing help. Mm-hmm. And because she is of an age, she's 22. Mm-hmm. They can't she, do much about it. They can't it. do anything about it unless they get her declared insane. Insane, yeah. But they're not saying it's insanity. They're saying it's it's a demon. Yeah. 
So on June 27th, Annalise had a bit of a fever, but it wasn't much of a fever. It subsided with some cold compresses. She refused to have a doctor come visit again. She got Dr. Roth, who was great at writing up prescriptions, to write a certificate to extend her leave from school. She had another exorcism done that night during the riot. She insisted on kneeling repeatedly. Her family were now putting cushions underneath her knees to try and help. Her last words to Father Renz were, please, absolution. So she was asking for the right of absolution, which he gave. So she went to bed a short while after, then she started screaming and throwing herself around. Her father was still in the room as it was past midnight, and he told her that he commanded the demons to leave in the name of the father since it was now July and they were obliged to depart so she could recover. After that, she quietly turned over onto her right side and went to sleep. The next morning, Mr. Mickle looked into Annalise's room and saw that she was sleeping, and so he went off to work. An hour later, his wife called and told him that Annalise was dead. And I just got chills go all through my body when I said that. Now, looking at the cause of death, the medical examiners concluded that Annalise's death was caused by starvation, possibly aggravated by physical exertion. They found her inner organs to be healthy. Her brain had no damage that could cause even microscopic seizures, though her pupils were unusually dilated. Mm-hmm. Now, remember that came up before? Yes, yep. But, I mean, when, when you pass, your, your pupils do do that. In the, the death report, they're sort of saying that with starvation, it's, it's unusual to actually die from starvation, and she was eating on and off. And humans can normally last 30 to 40 days without food, but it's drink water that yes. they, they can't yes. survive for very long. So it sort of didn't quite fit for them that she had died from malnutrition. But looking at photos of her, yeah, she was, she 60, was in a state. She was 68 pounds. Yeah, she did have a fever, but it wasn't high enough to really cause any issues. It is thought that she may have had epilepsy, but she'd only had possibly five seizures except for these other little ones that was the stiffness of the limbs. Now, my dad had epilepsy, and his very first one, he went all stiff, blacked out, sort of was awake but not responsive, and also, sorry, Dad, his bladder released. Yes. So that is a type of epilepsy. Yes. And if she was refusing to go to the doctor, it may have been undiagnosed epilepsy. They were treating her with strong anti-convulsive drugs. It could have been schizophrenia because she was hearing voices and she was having hallucinations. She constantly said she wasn't crazy, but does a crazy person know that? Yeah. She had depression. They kept changing her meds and they kept pumping her up with this Tegretol. And it's also possibly this dissociative identity disorder. Now, I just want to tell you the Dilantum, the first drug that she was on, headache, nausea, vomiting, constipation, dizziness, vertigo, drowsiness, trouble sleeping, nervousness. Mm-hmm. The Pericazine is very similar. So the Tegretol is used to control seizures, also to control uh, mania and bipolar mood disorders. And if you have an allergy to it, the side effects are trembling, uncontrolled body movements, lethargy, confusion, depression, aggressive behaviour, recurrence of a previous mental illness, hallucination, seeing or hearing things. No. (sighs) So 
As for the religious side of things, as you said, they didn't believe it was demonic possession mm-hmm. because they didn't. It really didn't come into their knowledge until someone made the suggestion, and then they probably looked into it, and all of a sudden she started to have a very typical possession. Yes. And the exorcisms weren't working, and we've had this happen yes. in so many cases. Exorcisms yes. aren't working. Yes, and I can can I tell you a little bit about Fleischmann because that that's intrigued me who this yeah. father Fleischmann was. So I've just looked it up very quickly, and it says here Valentin Fleischmann was a Frankish Catholic priest who lived in the 16th century. Fleischmann's priesthood lasted from around 1572 to 75. He had been defrocked and excommunicated from the Catholic Church due to his drunken behaviour. Fleischmann was accused of assault and murder. Now, because Annalise was a Catholic living in Germany, she may have learnt about Valentin Fleischmann during her studies as the Franks were Germanic and Fleischmann lived in Ettelbin, Bavaria. So she quite possibly had knowledge of him. Yep, so this information may have influenced the supposed presence of Fleischmann in demonic form. Mm. Now, look, exorcisms generally don't kill you because they are just prayers. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be prayed over. So it, it really none of it makes sense. Uh, it doesn't seem to be able to be pinned down to one thing. There's a lot of things that seem to have factored into it and nobody has put it all together. She did have typical possession things, as I said. There's medications that have had side effects. She's refused to seek medical help or intervention. Mm -hmm. Her parents are allowing a sick adult to make decisions on what's best for her. Mm -hmm. The priests had total belief in what they were doing, but they're also trying to confirm their own biases. And I think they were in over their heads. I think there was undiagnosed mental conditions and there was a doctor in there who was also just trying to cover his ass so he didn't go to jail. Mm-hmm. So do I think she was possessed and this was a true haunting? No. I think there was a lot of people who let her down. Yep. Nobody really listened to her. They kept giving her Band-Aid treatments with medications, not realising that the medications were causing the issues mm-hmm. and there was undiagnosed things happening. Yep. Yep. It's horrific. A, a really horrific story. Her burial site has now become a place of pilgrimage and people do go to her burial site and lay flowers and pray for her. I would like to go there one day and lay yeah, flowers myself. It would it would be something that that poor soul needs. Her last year of life, all those years of her life were just absolutely disastrous. And I think, look, it's a story that from our point of view as investigators and as people who are interested in this, it's important to really get into the details and look at it from a completely unbiased point of view. It doesn't take away the pain of what this poor young girl suffered um, and she's no longer here. But there is a lot we can learn from what's happened. Yes. So, look, guys, thank you so much for joining us for this very deep and heavy episode of True Hauntings. I hope you have enjoyed it. Or maybe at least learned something from this. A lot of movies have been made from this story. Yes. Uh, All of them pretty rubbish. Yep. When you consider the details. Yep. Um, They they say based on a true story, but let me tell you, there's a lot of liberties taken. Yeah. Yeah. 
In so saying that, yeah, we don't hope- forget to like, subscribe, please leave a review for us and share this podcast around to people so other people may enjoy our craziness. As I said, we're a little bit serious this episode, but I think the topic deserved it. So thank you for joining us. See you on the dark side. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, www.annandrenata.com. True Hauntings is a part of the Human Labs Podcast Network. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.